This is Jim the Podcast Sherpa from Too Many Podcasts, and you've got a ringside seat to the Mark the Shark MMA show. Let's get ready to podcast! The Shark MMA Show. Hi everyone, I got a good announcement for you. Other than this podcast, I have now started a brand new podcast, so check it out. It's available on Anchor and Spotify and iTunes called The Mark the Shark Show. And on this podcast, I talk about everything else that's non-MMA related. So check it out. Again, it's called The Mark the Shark Show. This podcast episode is brought to you by Empowered Learning. Empowered Learning is an online education business that serves 4th graders through 8th graders and even adults. They also offer GED programs. Check them out today at Empowered Learning clients.com again the website is empowered learning clients.com hi this is richard norton and you're listening to mark the shark mma show Hi everyone, I am your host, Mark the Shark Retorto, and welcome to the Mark the Shark MMA Show, where every week we talk about the wonderful sport of MMA. To me, we will review the most recent and upcoming events in MMA news. In each episode, the format may be changed, but you will always be entertained. There will be special interviews with special guests, along with special insights on the sport from our guest hosts. Also, check out our Facebook page for news and updates on future episodes. Also, we appreciate donations from our listeners to keep our podcast up and running. You can make a donation by clicking on the Click the Support button found at anchor.fm slash Mark the Shark MMA Show. And that's Mark spelled with a C and not a K. We are also looking for guests who want to be on the show and sponsors who want to advertise their product and brand on the show. For more information, contact me on the Mark the Shark MMA Show Facebook page. Page. Also, for a plug-in, if you're looking for a good action thriller suspense novel, check out a book called The Cabal, The Saga Begins. You can find it on both Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. It is available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobooks format on Amazon.com, and paperback version only on BarnesandNoble.com, and hardcover version is only available at www.retortofamilybooks.com. For a good book for your kid to read, check out I Am a Survivor or Invisible Girl, written by a little 11-year-old girl by the name of Christina Retorta. She has her books in Kindle and audiobook format and paperback format on Amazon.com and paperback format on both Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And a hardcover version is only available at www.retortofamilybooks.com. 
www.thebrandingcoach.com. Okay, everyone, keep on listening. We'll be back shortly after this break. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, I got a very special guest. If you were like me and you grew up in the 80s and you remember sitting at home and watching TV, uh, TV channels like Black Belt Theater and Kung Fu channels and stuff like that, you remember the movies from Chuck Norris, like the Octagon, Force Vengeance, Jim Cotton, and all those. Well, today's guest was actually in those movies. You know, he's, he's a world-known martial artist, uh, fight choreographer, and action star. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Richard Norton. How are you doing today? I'm very good, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. By the way, whenever you say things like that, you're a little bit like, you remind me, uh, I, I laughed when I had somebody asked me for an autograph once, you know, cute, cute little long girl came up some years ago. I said, oh, this is nice. And she said, oh, my mum and dad used to watch all your movies. And I said, oh, God. Okay. <laughs> and, and it's <laughs> true. I mean, when, I mean, I'm dating myself, but like, you know, I was like, you know, like a young kid, 12, 13, watching, like they used to have a dedicated channel every Saturday. They would, it, you had two flip. I was, I grew up in South Jersey and you could flip back and forth between them two. They were Philadelphia channels. They had Black Hole Theater and they had Kung Fu Theater. So all day I would just sit there and watch, and watch those movies. And it was great because I, I was into martial arts myself. And uh, it was, and I, and I, and I, I'm like, I remember him. Yeah, right there. his name is Richard Norton. And he was like, and then I find out, which we'll get into when I when I when we conduct get further into the interviews, that you're like me, you're into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, and you chained with Machado brother. So it's good to see um, someone like yourself, for partic- particularly for that particular time, that you cross trained a lot with your martial arts training, um, which was kind of important. I guess you you probably. Um, got turned on to them by Chuck Norris or whatever, but I like to go way back into to the roots of when you began your martial arts training. I think I read somewhere that you first started out with judo. Is that correct? Or Yeah, I started, uh, I was 11 years old when I got introduced to judo. Um, and as, I, as I've said a lot of times, I was very, very skinny, very little as an 11 year old. So even though I love the idea of it, it, you know, I was put into this sort of pool of older teenage judo players you know not so much higher rank but a lot bigger than i am and they used to chuck me from one end of the dojo to the other so that was my introduction <laughs> to judo yeah yeah i thought i was going to learn how to defeat 10 people with a flick of a wrist and wasn't quite that way mark but anyway <laughs> no it's not i i personally think like I, I, I've trained in various martial arts. I've done karate, I've done jiu-jitsu, I've done judo, I've done boxing, I've done Thai boxing. And to me, I found the hardest to learn. I actually started judo really late and I had to stop because injuries, but I find that, I, to me, I found that judo was the, was the hardest to learn because it's all pure technique. You know, it's, you can't really, you can't muscle a guy that's trained and throw him. You have to have really good technique to throw him. I mean, that's my opinion. I, I just found that to be a very um, difficult. You know, like you have to put a lot of time into it. You know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, like, like a couple of times a week, you can 
tap the average guy out, no problem. You know what I mean? Um, boxing, you know, is a little bit, the techniques are, you know, more, I think more realistic than a lot of the other martial arts. Um, that, that's my opinion, you know, they're e easier to implement. And then upon doing further research on you, before you got into films, you were actually a bodyguard, right? Like for celebrities such as David Bowie, James Taylor, and even Stevie Nicks for Fleetwood Mac. How did you get into that? Well, that, that gets back to my, um, when I started judo, you know, I was lucky enough to get introduced to goju karate, you know, you know uh, well, it was a Japanese form of goju that uh, Tino Seberano, who was a Hawaiian Filipino, he came out to Australia in the 60s, mid 60s. And I was invited along to a demonstration of this form of karate, which I went to. And I remember I just fell in love with it the first time I saw it, the whole idea of a bit more of a standoff style of combat, you know, using speed and agility as opposed to the strength that I believed then it required of a judo player. So I started judo and through training with uh, Tino, starting in the mid 60s, uh, I met who, who was to become my, my partner in our own style, that was Bob Jones. Bob was 10 years older than I was. And uh, we met and in 70, 1970, Bob wanted to basically originate his own style. And it was still based in, in Japanese karate and everything, but you, you talk about mixing martial arts, you know, with Zendo Kai, as we called it, um, Zendokai was really the product of us having, or particularly Bob, having bouncers, you know, or doormen or crowd controllers as they call them today. Bob had already been in the security business for many, many years, had a huge reputation as, a, as being very formidable in the street as well as running security and even doing some personal bodyguard work for you know, private individuals. And uh, so when I started Zendokai in 1970 with Bob, um, our club was pretty much full of, again, bouncers, crowd controllers, you know, tough guys, which is why our style started to incorporate a lot of other aspects of the combat world, meaning boxing and wrestling long before it was kind of in vogue to do that. You know, cause you'd remember back then, well, not quite so far back, but for me, you know, with, with martial arts, if you did say Goju, that's all you did. If you did Shotokan, you, that's all you did. If you did Wing Chun Kung Fu, you didn't mix. It was very much blinkers on. This is the style you did. If they yep. blocked a particular way, that's the only way you did it. Whereas Bob particularly realized that for the real world, you had to have a little more of a varied game as it were, which is why we incorporate a lot of the other arts into our style to make it work on doors or, you know, out on the road. And because of Bob's reputation in 72, 73, we got a call from a gentleman named Paul Dainty, who is a very uh, well-known entrepreneur in Australia, he used to bring a lot of rock and roll acts out to Australia. He rang and wanted to know if we would look after the Rolling Stones. And uh, so Bob and I did that too, which snowballed into a lot of the other acts that uh, Paul brought out. ABBA, you know, Fleetwood Mac, Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, some of the ones you mentioned. So that's how that whole career started on the road. Every time Paul would bring one of these major acts out to Australia, we would get the job of doing personal bodyguard work for them and or helping train them, but just basically look after them. 
And uh, it was in 79 that, you know, I'd worked with Linda Ronstadt in the year before and Linda wanted me to go and work for her full-time in the US. I was a little hesitant only because I was very well established in Australia. But anyway, long story short, I, I ended up going and it was the best thing I ever did because it changed the whole direction of my life. Started working with Linda and James in different bands and did that for quite some time, uh, basing myself in California. So that's really how it started. So that was a long-winded way of saying with Bob Jones, it really got me started due to him already being in the security world, so to speak. Oh, wow. That, was a, that must have been exciting meeting all the celebrities, right? <laughs> well, not only that, I mean, Mark, you're gonna, we, I always laugh. I say, God, to be on the road with rock and roll bands in the 70s and 80s, it doesn't get better than that. I mean, I know. <laughs> there was such extravagance on the road. You, you know, I was treated like a member of the band, you know, everywhere they went, every restaurant, every party, you were there, of course. And uh, so you're privy to a whole spectrum of sort of, uh, of how these, these celebrities lived, you know. Um, and it, and it was an amazing experience. I often say one of the best things for me was, you know, when you're doing bodyguard work, you know, people have these images of somebody standing around their arms folded, looking all tough. Well, I'm I'm six foot. I'm not a not a big guy. It wasn't about that. In fact, one of the reasons that both Bob and I got so much work is that we could virtually look like a member of the band. So there wasn't that big mm. heavy overture, but. They absolutely knew if it came down to it, we could take care of whatever situation might arise that needed somebody to step in. So, but I, the thing I, one of my best memories about working with people like that is that I actually got to see and experience the person, not mm -hmm. the image, you know, because so many, so many times people see like a David Bowie, you know, they see that, that, character that he's created whether it's ziggy stardust or whatever it is um they get to see that on stage but they never get to see the actual person and to be on a tour bus or in a hotel room month after month with some of these people i got to see the actual person and that in especially in hindsight has been really really it's such an enjoyable thing to look back and see what I, was, what I got to experience, as I said, in, in how they lived and how they acted. In fact, I was, you know, I was always encouraged to write a book about my experiences working with some of these bands. And, you know, I knew that it was more about the sex, drugs and rock and roll. And I said, well, I would never do that. I was in such a confidential position. I'd never write a, you know, a kiss and tell book. I hate that sort of thing. But I did decide, and I'm still in the process of writing a book that I call Lessons Learned from People at the Top of Their Game. And what I mean by that, you, you don't get somebody more at the top of the game than Mick Jagger or, or a Keith Richards, you know, or a James Taylor with decades of years, you know, as songwriters, as musicians and people in the forefront of their industry. And so I was fascinated with the way they behaved, things they did, and particularly their passion for what they did that resulted in the longevity, you know, in their careers. And um, so again, you know, I, I just feel fortunate to have been around that, you know, to see, to see the real people. And that's, that's still for me, gives me such vivid memories. And it's, it's such a thrill to remember back to those times. Yeah, it must have been. Now, mm. how did that, 
was it through that career as a bodyguard for these celebrities that led you into acting and getting film roles? Yes, indirectly, meaning uh, Bob had gone to America in 1978 and met Chuck Norris. And he ended up bringing Chuck Norris out to Australia in 1978. Chuck had just finished Good Guys Wear Black. Um, I think Breaker Breaker, you know, a couple of the yeah. very first movies he ever did. So he was going to do a bit of promotion for those, but particularly we had just introduced kickboxing into Australia and we had some tournaments uh, set up for different states, you know, in, in Australia. And we wanted Chuck to do some demonstrations and all of that, which he did. And I was demonstrating on the same card with him. I was using Cy and Bo, you know, Longstaff and uh, doing demonstrations with Chuck. We ended up becoming very close friends in that short amount of time that he was in Australia, to which he said to me, if you get to California anytime, look me up and we'll do some training. That's and even great. then, yeah, I, I hadn't aspired to go to the States, but like I said, I had worked with Linda Ronstadt in 78. She wanted me to come out. And Linda, Linda was the one that prompted me with a, with a few words she said to me when I was arming iron. She said, look, why don't you try it? You can always go back home. I remember thinking, you know what, I can't always go back home. And I use that, by the way, as an impetus to, when I say to people that sometimes you've just got to dare to step out of your comfort zone and just give something else a try. Because I was very hesitant. But again, when I look at my career, if I had not decided to take Linda up on that, that offer to go to California, I can't even imagine what my life would have been now. So I ended up there in 79 with Linda, gave Chuck a call. Chuck said immediately, oh, come around to the house, we'll do some training. Because he used to train two to three hours every morning at yeah. his house in Rolling Hills Estates out past the airport. So I started training with Chuck every day. I was still working with Linda, with James Taylor, I ended up working with different other bands. But every, every moment I was in town, I would be on the mat with Chuck. He introduced me to Benny Dijet Okides and Fumio Demura and just a I whole mean, Bill Wallace, it goes on and on. And Chuck was in the very early stages then of the Octagon pre-production because he knew I could handle Okinawan weapons. He asked me if I would play his nemesis in the Octagon, which is the Keo character, you know, the masked yeah. ninja enforcer. And so that was the start of a movie career. So I must say that when I went to the States, I had no aspirations about getting into movies. I was going as a bodyguard and I was going really to kind of further my martial arts uh, passion. And as a result, you know, I get to be in movies and, and you know, you gotta, you gotta think back. Octagon was in 1979 and I'm on the set with Simon and Philip Ree were, were there, who anybody who knows the martial art were there. They're doing amazing things with movies now. They're incredible martial artists. Tadashi Yamashita, Gerald Okamura. I mean, the list goes on. And here I am on the set with these people thinking, oh my God, this is like I'm a kid in a candy store and I'm actually getting paid to do this. I thought, what a great way to, to sort of basically get an economic return for my passion that enabled me to keep training. And that's that's the way I looked at it. And now something like, I don't know, 80, 90 movies later, and I'm still in the industry and still feel very fortunate to be a part of the industry. So Chuck was really the one that sort of opened the door, gave me the opportunity. And uh, thank, thankfully it all worked out and I ran with that opportunity. Yeah. 
And for, for those of you guys that were listening, like he was rambling off these names of these martial artists, <laughs> like Benny the Jet. For like I like for those people who don't understand it, like he's talking about like the golden age. Like these guys were like the best of the best. And, and, and like they were on the covers of uh, Karate Illustrated, Kung Fu Magazine, Black Belt Magazine. I mean, I used to subscribe to all that stuff when I was a kid, man. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and then, and I got to say, like, I've heard, I mean, I, I want to get your impression. I mean, I've heard um, from my karate instructor. I don't know if you ever met him. His name was Raymond Martin. He actually, um, he actually trained with Chuck Norris. He actually spent like a whole summer with Chuck Norris. And there was a book that Chuck Norris put out. Uh, I think it was his one and only book on comp competition karate. And he was his uki. Right, and right. He, was, he was the guy that he was demonstrating the, the moves on. I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet him, but I remember. You know what year that would have uh, been, Mark? Uh, it would, it, I would have to be, I would think it would probably, I hate to say it, it might have been before he actually made movies. Be yeah, because I don't, I don't remember the name so very possibly. Because again, I, I started training with Chuck in '79. Yeah, I, I recall that, and I was with Chuck just about every day that I wasn't away on tour. So I think I would remember if I had have met him. Yeah, his name so, was Raymond. I, I just had to ask that, and I just remember yeah. him saying that uh, it was good to see one of the good ones make it. I just well, you know, and and again with the the memories of those days, like you said, not only. Like Fumio Demura was just, I, I remember like training that. with Fumio down in Orange County and a lot of the younger ones would know Sensei Demura now, but he was just an icon and, and what a gentleman. I remember training with him and thinking, this is exactly what I believe a Sensei in the arts should be. You know, you know I, was, I was just this young Aussie kid. He would stay behind on weekends and help me with weapons, with kata and everything else. It was, a, it was a very interesting time. And, and to meet people like Benny the Jet Okides, who's what an absolute legend. Benny's still one of my very few mentors. Uh, he's just an amazing, amazing gentleman in the martial arts. Bill Wallace, of course, people like that. I mean, they, they were the pioneer years, you know, for the yeah. arts. And, and, and you made- part of that, so very blessed. Yeah, and you, and you made that movie with Benny the Jet, Force Five, how how did it feel? I mean, you had Joe, people who don't understand this. I'm like jumping out of my seat of excitement here. He was in a movie with Benny the Jet and Joe Lewis. Now, Joe Lewis, there's 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 a Joe Lewis in the world of karate during the golden age of karate. He, he was the uh, heavyweight. the first heavyweight American kickbox uh, world kickboxing champion. Back in those days, they were using, it wasn't Thai boxing, it was uh, what they called uh, American kickboxing, PK, uh, Professional Karate Association. And Benny DeJet was another world champion. I think he, I think he retired, I think he might even, he had like over 50 fights, Benny DeJet, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or maybe. You know, and in, and in kickboxing, he had undefeated record. I mean, that guy, you know, I've always said there's, there's, I don't know anybody tougher pound for pound than Benny the Jet Akitas. I mean, that guy's just an absolute warrior. Um, but, but getting back to Force Five, you know, I love to tell the story and it's, I tell it because, I don't know, it's to give people a little bit of a, an insight into mindset. But I remember when uh, Pat Johnson, who was a 
ex-partner of Chuck Norris, a yep. fight choreographer and martial arts master in his own right. He wanted me to audition for Force 5. I remember going down, there's probably a hundred of the best martial artists in America, you know, at that time auditioning. And I still remember walking in there and going, oh my God, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I've got a funny accent, at least to Americans, not to me. <laughs> uh, I got this funny accent, you know, nobody knows who I am, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so we end up auditioning. You have to do kicks and all this sort of business and do a bit of a read. And it finally gets down to 10 people and I'm still one of them. And I'm think, and it was a big change of attitude for me where I suddenly went, wow, you know, I must have the skills they need for this. And I changed my attitude from why me to why not me. Why shouldn't it be me? I've trained as hard as anybody. I can absolutely do this. And of course, the rest is history because I got one of the lead roles in a movie that was, you know, that really I probably shouldn't have got considering my nationality and everything else. So it was a big change in attitude working with in Force 5. And of course, like you said, I'm on the set with, well, you, again, kids wouldn't remember Sonny Barnes, you know, African-American martial arts, amazing in his own right, Benny the Jet, Master Bong Su Han, who was a Hapkido master. Yeah. And Joe Lewis, I mean, Joe Lewis, you know, was was an icon, you know, the likes of Chuck Norris. They fought each other in tournament, yep. you know, and, uh, and an amazing martial artist. So again, I'm on a set with all these incredible martial artists, you know, I think Keith Vitale was in that film. But I thought again, how good is this? I mean, you know, talk about, I said again, a kid in the candy store, you know, and I'm on the set with these people. And it, it again, what an incredible memory. And I feel very fortunate to be a part of such an early pioneer status of even martial arts movies, you know? Yeah. I look at those movies now in the action and I go, oh my God, I have a bit of a laugh because the whole industry has just morphed into something amazing with Scott Atkins and Michael J. White and what people like this are doing. But again, we did what we did. It was what you did back in that day. And they used that as a springboard, you know, to sort of catapult themselves into bigger and better things, thankfully, you know, and I love the fact that we we're able to sort of, um, I don't know, set a bit of a, a bit of a standard back then and for them to just springboard, you know, into the unknown as far as what they're able to do these days. But Force Five was was the first lead for me, and uh, and again, amazing experience. Did you did you get like outside of the movie? Did you get like to spar with Joe Lewis and Benny the Jet often, like in your in your training with them, or like? Well, know, not not during the movie because it's it's pretty hard, yak. You know, once yeah. you start shooting, you know, it's full on. You know, the twelve hour days and everything. But I, uh, as a result, I started training at the Jet Center. And that was an everyday thing for me. I trained with Chuck and then I would go to the Jet Center. That was in the early 80s and uh, trained, you know, in fact, I was training with Benny long before he had the Jet Center. He used to have a place near a tattoo parlor in uh, Van Nuys. And I was training with him and his brother, Smiley and Ruben Aquides and Blinky Rodriguez, his brother-in-law, yeah. all just amazing, amazing people. And then of course the Jet Center opened and I became a staple there. And my coach became Pete Sugarfoot Cunningham. Pete Cunningham. Oh, yeah, he's an all the world champion. Oh man, undefeated <laughs> blackboard. He was like the sugar railing of kickboxing. And I still, to this day, uh, train with, uh, with Sensei Pete. He's just, he's one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. 
So still with him. And uh, that was as a result of the Jets. And I didn't actually get to train with Joe. Joe wouldn't have lived in California. But of course, we had lots of conversations being on the set so often together. And, and Joe's a real character. You know, I remember the, I remember the, I, I think we'd been working a couple of days and I'm standing in line waiting to get a food and Joe's kind of a little bit behind me. And for those who don't know, anyone that knows the history of Joe Lewis, a lot of Joe's success, I would say, to a certain degree, aside from being an amazing martial artist, was his, was again, his mindset. He was very intimidating. You know, Joe used to have this side on stance these huge psychic knuckles, you know, and then point them at whoever is firing. You'd probably sort of plant the harder sidekick on them who, you know, to begin with, just to sort of get a little bit of a, you know, the old alpha pecking order. In, in yeah, line. he was but known anyway, for the sidekicks. Yeah, and I'm saying Joe's kind of looking, he's, he's propped back on one leg and he's looking me up and down. And, and I look <laughs> around with Joe and I see, he says, so, so what have you done? I said, uh, what do you mean, what have, I, well, what have you done? You know, it's one of those probing questions. It was meaning in the way of martial arts. And I said, well, I, you know, did some judo, done some goju, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, is that it? And I said, well, why the fuck does it matter to you, Joe? I'm the one that's going to throw my kicks and punches. So it shouldn't, shouldn't worry you at all, should it, my, my friend? You know, and it was basically, <laughs> I could just sort of say to him then that don't, even start that with me you know what I mean that's not going to work and it was really just putting things in a bit of a balance you know Joe Joe again was very much about establishing again that alpha status and you know even as a result of that one little time we just got on so well with the whole shoot you know he's he's a very funny guy but yeah just just funny even with Master Bong Suhan I remember who anyone who knew you know who's long past but Master Han was such a gentleman. He was, again, a gentleman in the arts and so respected. And I remember standing there and Joe starts to have a little go at uh, Master Han, you know, because he was wearing the very long kind of outfit, you know, like a master's robes and everything. And Joe's like, so, so, Mr. Han, what's with that kung fu skirt you're wearing, you know? <laughs> and poor old Master Han, I remember, looked at Joe and he, he was quite a little unsure of how to handle it. I remember saying, oh, Joe, why, why, you, why you say that to me? Why you pick on me? You know, we're just working together. And anyway, it was a bit of an indication of Joe. But he, he, he you know, was all in good spirit with Joe. That was the way he was. And it, like I said, what, a, what an amazing martial artist he was, you know, back in, in yeah. that time. I remember watching... Uh... I don't remember where I where I got the VHS tape from, or maybe it was on TV and I recorded it. It was like a footage of one of his kickboxing matches where he hit the guy so hard, he punched him so hard, he separated his shoulder, went back to the corner, had it put back in place, and continued to fight the guy. He was fighting the guy that had weighed him by like 30 pounds. He was like, but I mean, the, the, that era predated me, but I, I would I grew up like watching the magazines and following the history. Now I have to ask you a question though. Did, I mean, because you like you met Chuck Norris, you came to the US when? It was a seven. Okay. So during your whole career, you never got to meet Bruce Lee, right? Because he died in like 73, I believe, right? Yeah, no, he was long dead. Oh, I'm yeah. getting a little better now. Is that um, yes, no, I, I, Bruce was long gone when I came out in 79. Of course, 
Chuck trained with Bruce, as everybody knows, and all of that. But yeah, but 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 my my exposure to Bruce was like everybody else, you know, was with those early films, you know, that Bruce did, and of course, End of the Dragon, you know, was such a trailblazer and kind of uh, I don't know, just inspired so many martial artists, you know. As a result, I mean, I was already well into the arts by the time Bruce was uh, out doing movies. But yeah, it, it it would have been great to have met him, but you know, again, missed by about seven years. Yeah, I had to ask that question because when you said the years, I'm like, oh, he probably never got to meet him, but I didn't know. I didn't know how to ask. I had to ask. No, I do, you know, as a little tidbit, I do. A very close friend of mine here in Melbourne is a gentleman named uh, William Chung. Sifu Chung, he was actually Bruce's senior, you know, back in the days uh, in Hong Kong and training with Ip Man. And he's, he's got wonderful stories about Bruce. Um, and uh, it's, it, that's, again, just to, to hear stories from somebody who was around when Bruce was just a youngster and a student, you know, coming up in the arts in the days of Hong Kong. I mean, that's for another time, but Bill Chong, you know, he's he's got a treasure trove of stories about young Bruce Lee. Yeah. And all the rooftop fights and all that sort of stuff that went on. And you know, that that's a that's a great time too. Now, how you said you met Bill Wallace. I, I went to a seminar of his and I was just blown away by him. And at that time I was probably 20, 20 something, 24 years old. And he was in his forties and he was them, you know, it was a kicking seminar and he was just demonstrating, you know, the style, how he had to keep the knee up and you can't tell if he's throwing a side kick or a hook kick or a round kick. And he used me as a, an Uki, you know, I, I could not see his kicks. And, th and at the time he was well into his forties. Like what, what was your impression? Cause you, you met him when he was, you know, younger and stuff, right? Yeah, well, I, I and I, uh, luckily enough, I went and um, helped Bill train for a fight he had with Ray McCallum. Um, I don't even remember what year it was, but I went to Memphis. You know, Bill used to teach at a university in Memphis and uh, a karate class. And so I got to spend, you know, I forget how long they stayed there, maybe a month, you know, training with Bill. This, of course, after I'd met him in Los Angeles, again, through through Chuck. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, um, what can I say? You know, for me coming up, see, I was a, I was a goju practitioner. So, that, you know, we're talking traditional karate. You kind of, yes, you kick groin kicks off the front foot and all that. You have Nikoshi darts, your cat stands, and you kick off the back foot and put your foot down. To come out and see someone like Bill kicking off the front leg with these multiple kicks. And as you, you pointed out, it was either a side kick, a hooking heel kick, or a round kick. They were the only three kicks he was going to throw. Yeah. And furthermore, as Bill would say, everybody he fights, he said, they know I'm only going to do those three kicks, and I'm going to do them with the same leg. He would never do them with the right leg. And he said, and yet I'm still able to hit them with them. And uh, I think that was the amazing thing with, with Bill was, the so-called predictability of what he was about to hit you with, but the fact that you still could do nothing about it because yeah. of his speed. Yeah. And like you said, he was able to put that knee into the front. So, you know, it was the same cock position. So you, whether it's a round kick, side kick or hooking heel, it would come from that one position, which made it very hard to read. And Bill was just great at just combining those three kicks in whatever order he felt. He had a very powerful side kick to the body. 
Um, and it was all on speed, you know, Bill, as he said, Bill wouldn't use like hip as such, you know, with rotation of the hip. It was all about the quadrants, about velocity. So it would kind of hit you like a bullet. And it yeah. was about speed. And his timing was impeccable. I mean, Bill, you could get that close to Bill and think there's no possible way he's going to be able to kick me now. And you'd still feel this flipping foot coming and wrap you around the head. <laughs> he had un unbelievable flexibility, that guy. Even, even when I met him when he was in his 40s. He's like, it takes me long to do the split, but I could still do the split. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's still doing seminars and everything now, and he's had both hips replaced. So God bless him. I mean, he's still out there doing his thing. And I, I love stories like that when when people it just says to me that they are absolutely what we know as martial artists, meaning it's not a matter of now I can't compete anymore. So now my career's finished. They still continue teaching, they still continue sharing their knowledge, their information, knowledge of their journeys that got them to where they are. And I, and I love I love seeing, same with Chuck. I mean, Chuck's 80 years old now, and I still, you know, I still talk to Chuck a lot, you know, and I, I was going to ask you that, are you still, do you still keep in touch with him and stuff? Yeah, and I saw a little clip of him uh, hitting the mitts. And, you know, as somebody said, I mean, the guy's 80 or 81 years old, and he's, he's hitting the mitts. How good is that? You know, it's it's just inspirational. Yeah, no, I, and, and Chuck's a role model from the point of view that, again, he just doesn't stop being a martial artist. You know, that's what he is. It wasn't a part-time thing. It wasn't a phase in his life. It's the same as Benny Okides and Bill Wallace, as I said, and Chuck Norris, they're, they're just martial artists through and through. That's their passion. And they continue to show their passion. And I think that's that's incredibly inspiring. I mean, you know, Chuck's been, again, what a role model Chuck's been. And getting onto the subject of what we're talking about, one of the reasons I, I like to bring Chuck up with martial artists is as an example of somebody who has no ego when it comes to increasing or improving themselves or their knowledge, you know, as far as martial arts. I mean, you know, I was the one that got Chuck started with the Machado brothers, you know, back Oh, in I was going to, I was going to, that leads into, I was going to ask you about that. Like, how did you start jujitsu training? So I guess we hit that. Yeah, up. well, but, but before we get on, I mean, I, I, and I'll tell you that story, but the, the thing about Chuck is that I tell people is when, you know, Chuck and Bob Wall and myself are the ones that have got the Machados, their first school in Los Angeles, in the Valley, in Encino. And I always, and I'm paraphrasing there, but I always say to people, who was the first person on the mat wearing a white belt? It was Chuck Norris, you know? Now, this is a guy who you would think would, you know, be like, oh, well, I'm Chuck Norris. I'm supposed to know it all. And I'm this grandmaster. Didn't even occur to him the fact that there was something you'd learn he was willing to put on a white belt and be a student on the mat with the Machados back then. I, I just, for me, that said everything about the sort of person, the sort of martial artist Chuck was. And as an example, the younger ones to never ever forget to be a student that, you know, it's about that journey. It's about aspiring to excellence, you know, and to more knowledge and to be a, a better person. And Chuck's an example of that. So hats off to him. I love to tell people Chuck was best man at my wedding. Do you know that, Mark? No, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. We weren't even good friends. I was just worried if somebody caused some shit at the wedding, I needed somebody to take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> That's a good one, man. That's a good one. 
So which Machado was your primary instructor? Was it Hegan or Jean-Jacques Machado or? No, I started off with, with Hegan and Carlos uh, because they were, you know, when I met them and I met them through Henza Gracie of all people, um, they were all in one house out in Renondo Beach, you know, but Jean-Jacques wasn't even in the country at that stage. He still hadn't come out from Brazil. So through, you know, I, I started my training late 80s with Hicks and Gracie at Hori and Gracie's house in a garage. I ended up, and let, let's go back a step here because I think it's important to, to give sort of history to this, but it all started with Chuck and Bob Wall, you know, and their wives going to Brazil for a, like a holiday of vacation. And because of what they do, Chuck, of course, wanted to know what martial arts people did in Rio, you know, wherever they were. So cut to, they end up in a school, in a jiu-jitsu school with Helio Gracie, Orion Gracie, Hickson Gracie and Hoist Gracie, can you imagine? So yeah. he's in the school asking them about what we now know as Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Of course, you know, Brazilians didn't call it Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it was jiu-jitsu, it has Japanese origins, but anyway, so, he ended up doing a little session with them. He even had a little role with uh, Elio Gracie. Uh, and, uh, and, and the funny story Chuck says is he's, Helio says, oh, come and have a role. Helio would have been in his seventies, I believe then. And for those wow. who don't know, Helio passed away some, some years ago at the age of 95. But so Chuck's having a little role with Helio and he says he's on top of uh, Master Helio, you know, Master Gracie. And suddenly Helio looks up and says, Chuck, punch me, you know? and Chuck says, he says, oh, oh, master, I can't punch you. No, 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 go ahead and punch me. Chuck said he kind of half-heartedly did this. Next minute, there's a cross-collar choke on him. And he was virtually <laughs> out cold. He's, Chuck said, I couldn't eat for three days. My jaw was so sore. So that was kind of his introduction. <laughs> he ended up bringing a videotape back that he showed me in you know, a few of the others that we're training with. This was a videotape of uh, Hicks and Gracie's very early Valley Tudo matches in Brazil, which for those who don't know, was really like MMA, you know, it was yeah. with basically no rules matches, no weight divisions. This was Hicks on basically demonstrating his expertise in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so Chuck showed me that, and that's what resulted in me, you know, eventually meeting Henzo uh, Gracie and uh, sorry, that resulted in me wanting to find anybody in LA that did Gracie Jiu Jitsu and asking around, it turned out that Horion Gracie was also out in, you know, in the Bay Area there. And I called Horion up and I introduced myself and I said, oh, is it possible to come around and maybe do a lesson? And this again was before the Gracies had any of their actual schools or academies, you know, Gracie the University didn't exist, of course because Henner and Helaman were only about this high. And I ended up going around to Horion's house. And that's when I first met Hicks and Gracie. This is in the late eighties. And it pretty much, you know, they, they knew a little bit about me. And obviously I told them I was basically a stand-up fighter karate guy, was doing kickboxing, et cetera, et cetera, at the Jet Center. So the first thing uh, Hickson said to me, was, oh, my friend, do you want to put the gloves on? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I was smart enough to go, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I just really interested to see what you guys do. Anyway, that led on to me getting private lessons with uh, Hickson for, 
I forget how many months, you know, and um, again, what, a, what an amazing time of my life as a martial artist. This is way before the first UFC. They still in a garage at their house and I'm training with the legendary Hicks and Gracie. Oh, and the other great story, which I've told before, but I'll tell you again, you'd appreciate it. One of my first intros was Hoist was there. This is again, Hoist, for those who don't know, was the first UFC champion. But this is before all of that. Hoist is still just a kid. Hoist gets on his back and I have to sit on him in the mount position and try and stay there. And then Hoist sat on me and I had to try and get him off. Of course, there's no striking or punching, not that that would have made a lot of difference. And both of which were impossible. And I remember leaving that day going, you know what? I just felt like a little baby on the ground with these guys. How good would it be if I can add these skills to my stand-up skills? And the, the key word being add, not instead of, I thought, you know, I just need to add this to, to my stand-up skills. And that's, that's what started my uh, whole journey into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was some time later I met Henzo Gracie, who basically in a conversation to who you're training with, I said, oh, I'm going to Orion's house, training with Hicks on. He said, oh, you need to meet my cousins, the Machados. And so he introduced me. And as I said, there was only a few of them out in a garage, all living in one house, Redondo Beach. I told Chuck about it, you know, because I was training still with Chuck every day. And Chuck had moved out to Tarzana at this stage. And uh, Chuck said, oh, bring them out to the house, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll book a private. So I ended up, I think it was Carlos and Higgin, might have been John Machado, I can't remember. And they came out and uh, we started doing lessons with them at Chuck's house, which led on to Chuck and Bob Wall and myself uh, setting them up in their first school in Encino. They ended up opening up a school then in Redondo Beach. And um, the rest is history for them. But, you know, that, that, that's how all of that started. So, so I really thank Chuck for the intro in when he first brought the videotape back from Brazil of Hicks I'm Fighting. That was when we first went, well, wow, what is this? You know, it looks like wrestling, but it's not because obviously it's submission grappling. And uh, the rest is history, you know. So Chuck is really, as far as the Machado's, it was Chuck, it was me bringing them out to the house, starting lessons with them and Chuck getting interested that really sort of set up a whole industry for the Machados in the US. Hmm. Interesting. Now, what, what was your first impression when you first, you know, got on a mat with these guys? Like, what was your first impression of Jiu-Jitsu? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> you would know that anybody that doesn't know Jiu-Jitsu, when you look at it, it's very hard to sort of get an idea of the effectiveness of, because it just looks like two dudes rolling around on the ground. But once you get on and you feel the absolute complete control a good jiu-jitsu player has over you, especially if you have no grappling, you know, uh, skills, it's just incredible. And the, the most telling thing for me was that I swear that whether it's, it's Carlos Machado or Higgin, they, the fact that they were so relaxed, they almost looked like they were going to sleep when they're rolling with you. You know, the relaxed control and complete control they had over me was something I'll never forget, you know? And that really intrigued me because, you know, we're used to, if you're not a grappling, you you tend to immediately try and get a headlock or you're using yeah. a lot of strength, a lot of energy. 
and they'll just relax. I mean, if people remember Hoist in the very first UFCs, he'd get these big dudes, there were no weight divisions. He would basically just survive. You know, they teach in jiu-jitsu. The real thing about jiu-jitsu is to survive the fight. Don't even think about winning, survive, because if you don't get tapped out or submitted, then you haven't lost, you know? And that was an interesting sort of mindset. So I, I, I just, I was struck by how incredibly relaxed and also, and I still say to this day with the thousands of times I would wrestle someone like a Jean-Jacques Machado who became my main coach for something like 30 years only because I lived in the Valley and, and Jean-Jacques stayed in uh, Encino at that stage um, teaching that of the thousands of times that I'd wrestle someone like Jean-Jacques, he never hurt me once never hurt me once and yet there was not a moment when I even dreamed I could actually get a finish on him that's how good he <laughs> was, good he was. <laughs> I mean even 20 years later you'd go well I it's out of the realm of possibility that I could think that I could ever tap somebody like this out which is really a testimonial to to the incredible complexity and effectiveness of Brazilian jiu-jitsu you know I mean it's you know, with boxing, you have a jab and you have a cross and an uppercut and a hook. And that's kind of it. And you get really good at those. As you would know with jiu-jitsu, it's, it's, there's an infinite amount of, of moves, it seems. Yeah. You know, in that one, of the, one of the interesting things with the Brazilian style of jiu-jitsu, and I say Brazilian as opposed to even Japanese, is that it allows itself to evolve. I mean, it changed stuff we were doing five years ago, they're not even doing anymore because people have figured out counters and they've worked, evolved a better way to apply, whether it's a triangle choke or whatever it is. So the fact that it is allowed continual evolution is fascinating. I mean, look at the last five years with where they've taken the leg lock game. Yeah, I know. When I started, I mean, it was almost dirty pool to attack the legs with knee bars or heel hooks. Yeah. I actually Maybe saw you on... Uh... Facebook, you're actually training with someone that's really good. Uh, his name. Lucky Giles, Lachlan yeah. Giles. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think well, he Lucky, Lucky's one of the top few grapplers in the world at the moment. He took his, odds, I think, at the ADCCs. Yeah, I actually yeah. saw your Facebook post. I'm like, ah, he's keeping up. With well, us. And, and the reason is what I'm saying is because of the evolution, the jujitsu we did five years ago, you can't compete against these guys now. Look at Craig Jones, another Melbourne guy. He's beating everybody, and it's pretty much with inside heel hook or whatever, you know, and it's it's a different – it's like learning in new art. I'm learning with Lockie yeah, because – it is. It's amazing because I just – I said, Lockie, you need to bring me into the 21st century, you know, because that's how new it is, you know, in the last yeah. five years or so with the evolution of the lower sort of leg attack game, leg entanglement and everything, and but – but that's also what's exciting about it. You know, the fact that I'm 71 years of age, I haven't missed training in martial arts since 11. And at 71, I've still got a whole new world of learning with what Lockie's showing me to add to my martial arts game. And that's just exciting to me, you know, that, that, that providing you have the aspiration and the eagerness and everything, as a martial artist, we have the chance to learn something new every day of our waking lives, should we have that desire. And I think that's, that's a fantastic aspect of the arts, you know, and what we do, it's good for the mind, the body, plasticity of the brain, it just goes on and on, you know? That's great. Now I gotta yeah. ask you a question, because you did, you did some movies with Jackie Chan too, right? Yep. Who was the 
like out of all the actors you worked with, you know, the martial arts, you worked with Jackie Chan and Chuck Norris and Cynthia Rumba. Who was the funniest? Was it Jackie Chan? No. No. <laughs> well, and the reason I say that, you know, it, it, what remember I said to you about you, you know, it's like with rock and roll is like a David Bowie, you know, that you get to actually witness or get to be around the person, not not the persona. And you know, somebody I didn't get to meet Robin Williams, but I did get meet to somebody that did meet Robin Williams. And you know, the first thing they said is everybody expects a comedian like Robin Williams to be funny all the time. When the reality is that's his job, that's his profession, that's what he does. He's serious about being funny, but that doesn't mean he's going to be like that in everyday life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's sort of a profession. So you get on the set with Jackie. And people would say, oh, it must be so much fun working with Jackie Chan. It's like, no, it's not. It's totally not fun in that he is so serious about what he wants, you know, from you as an actor or somebody involved in one of his movies. His pursuit of excellence is second to none. So you're on the set 18 hours a day sometimes, as I've often said, doing fights. You know, you're doing take after take after take. You're getting smashed and kicked and punched and everything else. <laughs> it is far from fun. And he is that serious about what he is going to get on celluloid as a result of that work on the set. So there's no real chance to be funny. Now, having said that, he's a lovely man. I mean, Jackie was so, so nice to me. He took me shopping all over Hong Kong you know, buying cameras, you know, Samahong, you know, particularly took me into editing after we'd finished shooting on any given day. I mean, just, just amazing people as far as, you know, what they did. But again, they're professionals, you know, that's, that's what they do. Mm. Now, if you, but, out of all the people you worked with, who would you say had the most influence on you out of all the people you worked with in the film? Oh boy, that's, I mean, you, again, I have to say Chuck. Chuck being the first person I worked with. Chuck as a role model as far as somebody wanting to ever, ever improve himself. You know, his knowledge base as a martial artist, his passion for the martial arts, you know, fantastic, you know. Someone like Jackie, because Jackie, again, is is never not working. I mean, his, his, his oh God, his ability to apply himself to what he does is, is amazing. Sammo Hong, I still say is one of the, uh, he's probably the person I respect most as an action director and martial artist and basically stunt player because that guy is capable of anything. I, the creativity of Sammo when it comes to putting a fight scene together, not just putting it together, but executing it is second to none. And boy, that guy's tough, you know. You, you get a feel when you, even though it's film fighting, you get a feel for somebody who could really fight. Samo's got it, man. His spinning back kick, you know, and, he, and the power in his technique is incredible. So I have nothing but respect for uh, for Samo. Um, mm. no, no question about it. And of course, you know, as we also mentioned, Benny, Benny the Jet, you know, he's just a doer. You know, Benny... And he doesn't just talk, he, he does, you know, and he still does. He's still doing seminars. He's still, he's still just an inspiration to so many martial artists out there, you know? So again, I could go on and on, Mark, but I, again, I feel blessed to have been in the presence of so many of these incredible people, you know, that have a like passion for the arts that, that I do. Mm. Now, which mm. do you like better being, uh, 
like the act acting in the movie or being a fight choreographer or like which one do you prefer? No, I, I still like the idea of being an actor better. You know, I, I like being in front of the camera. Look, the reason I'm doing a lot of fight coordinating now um, is probably just because of age. I mean, the older you get, the less roles there are. You know, I often joke that the roles I get now probably are somebody's dad or an aging gangster or something, you know, but I mean, and I laugh because that's a reality. You're a product when you're in a movie. They want the 30 year old kids to be running around being the superhero. I get that. And so as a result, with all my experience, having done all my own stunts and fight stuff in the 80s, 90s movies I did, I am able to take that expertise and put it into behind the camera, you know, as a fight coordinator. I know how to train actors, you know, bring their skill sets up and choreograph stuff according to character. Having acted myself, I understand the idea that, that the way an actor moves as a character has everything to do with the script and the way their character is written. Meaning, you know, the drama within a fight is just as important as the physicality in the fight. And um, I think, again, because of the lower budget movies I did way back, I can bring that that level of expertise and 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 help even someone like a Margot Robbie or a Scarlett Johansson. I know that sounds like big noting, but it's in the sense that, you know, I'm able to say, look, a fight is a continuation of the story, the coming from, you know, what caused the fight? What motivates the fight? What do you want out of the fight? They're the same questions you would ask an actor going into a drama scene. You know, what do you want out of the scene? You know, the ferocity of the fight and the technique used would depend on who they're fighting and again, what that end result was. And so I, I, I feel I'm able to help them with intent as far as, you know, the, the dramatic aspects of a fight or the moments that come in between the actual punches and kicks, you know? Yeah, because I believe you worked on one of the Suicide Squad movies, right? As a fight coordinator, right? Yes, did two of them now. Did the first yeah. one and just finished the uh, last one. Well, last year we worked in Atlanta and Panama and finished Suicide that comes out in August, I believe, with James Gunn. Uh, that's going to be an amazing movie. I, I loved working with James. I think he's brought a whole whole new aspect to, you know, to the movie. Incredible cast, you know, um, on, on that movie, Idris Elba and Margot Robbie, of course, you know, and uh, it, it, it's it's going to be great. A great, I think, because it's going to have a lot of drama as well as action and as well as off the world James Gunn humor, you know. So it's really got something that'll appeal to so many different sensibilities. And importantly, it's his movie. And what I mean by that was, I, you know, I've read stories and I, I actually concur that Suicide Squad that David Ayer directed wasn't a movie that David Ayer wrote and directed, meaning there was a lot of outside input from studio and the end result that went on screen. With this one, I believe James has had total editing control and control of what that movie is going to be. And what you see is what he had in his mind when he wrote it and when he directed. And as a result, I think it's going to be phenomenal. Mm. Is that filmed where you live in Australia or is that filmed in, here in the U.S.? No, he's filmed in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, wow. Okay. And Panama. We also went to Panama City and, and shot some of it. Okay. And you got any other movies coming out this year? Because I think I saw something online. Like, you may have, it, like, another one coming out. I saw oh, something. God. Rage or something? 
Yeah, Rage. Well, that's already out. Look, it's a, that's a smaller budget movie. I was approached by a, a gentleman who lives here in Melbourne, Australia, a director producer. I helped him kind of, albeit minor, in a minor way on some short action movies he did. And he wanted to know if I would work with him in a movie that he was directing and producing. And I said, sure, you know, I was in town anyway. And I, I just loved the idea of getting in front of the camera. I got to play a cop, it's a crime drama. So there's no action as such. And it was just an interesting challenge for me to do that. Um, again, shoestring budget, but I think it turned out incredibly well. Uh, I'm not sure where you'd find in, in the States. I'm, it was on Vimeo on demand here. I think it was on Apple streaming or whatever in the US. Uh, but again, it's a little crime drama, so that's out there. Um, I did work with, but it was again, fight coordinating on a film called Blacklight that Liam Neeson shot here in Melbourne earlier, uh, late last year, earlier this year. So that'll be coming out soon. And yes, there's a couple of others in the pipeline that I look like me involved in. So I, you know, I don't like to talk about them, Mark, because as you know, we, you say yes to about four things. And if one of them actually happens, you're doing well. That's just the way the industry is. So it's better to talk about them after you've done them rather than talking about something that's coming up. Because then you look like an idiot when people are saying, oh, I had that movie go. And, ah, and you've got to say, well, uh, I didn't actually do it, you know. Yeah. So now, one more question. I'll let you go. So primarily now, I, I just so you guys know, he also runs a uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school. I'm on your website now, RichardNortonBJJ.com. Now, is it primarily just Jiu-Jitsu, or do you teach other martial arts that that you know as well? Well, that that particular association, Team Norton, you know, RichardNortonBJJ.com. That's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Association. I've probably got 10 clubs, you know, under me in Sydney and Melbourne, a few other places. So I oversee that. I'll go and, you know, I was just in Sydney a few weeks ago, did four seminars over a weekend. You know, of course, I oversee their gradings and everything else. But I do still teach um, seminars. You know, I teach Zendo Kai, the style that Bob and I, um, started in 1970 is still very, very strong today. Um, and I'm sort of a, a mentor and one of the heads of Zendokai. So I still go around teaching reality-based seminars as well as more of the traditional style karate type seminars, of course, along with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So it's really whatever a particular school or something specializes in and if they think I have some knowledge that I can share with them. And I love seminars. I, I, I just, I love it because I'm, a, I'm a, a bit of a junkie with preparing, you know, I will spend weeks sort of going online and trying to update my knowledge base because I, I often say I don't want to be the same martial artist I was last year or five years ago. I want to try and express my martial arts slightly differently every time. And seminars are a way of giving me a, a good kick in the bum to keep training, to get in the gym, to be up to scratch, you know? Because Sydney was four three-hour seminars, you know? So there's three hours Friday night, two, three hours on Saturday, another three hours on Sunday. So it's a bit of a slog. But again, you know, I, in my little mind, I'm going, yeah, they're probably going, oh, let's see if Norton slowed down a bit. Well, he's probably a bit crotchety now. And I'm like, no, nah, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> I got to admit, though, you, you look great for your age, man. I, I got it. I was telling my wife, I'm like, this guy 
is in his 70s and he's in better shape than me and most of my friends. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, I'm a little bummed out because I've like got injuries, so I haven't been training. I just train like, like once a week now, but I, I still try to do a little bit. But I mean, you're, yeah. you're you should be an inspiration to every guy out there that's got that dad bod. If he can lose that dad bod, you should too, man. I'm telling you, you look great. Hey, you know like, what, Mark? You, you, yeah, the, the key to it, you know, people say, oh, how do you still keep doing it? And the key, first of all, is is to look at what you have and what not what you don't have. You know, I have my shoulder is wrecked at the moment, a few things. But if you sort of start to dwell on that, and I go back to Benny the Jet Okitas, who always said to me, he said, I'll never utter the words, I'm getting too old, I've got to slow down a bit, my back's not too good. Yeah. Because you believe you give yourself a psychological crutch to no longer participate fully anymore. And I'm a total, I adhere to that 100%. So I never, as soon as I start to go, oh, I don't think I'll train today because I'm feeling a little bit sore. That to me is a key. I start swearing on myself, you weak bastard, you get down there to the gym. And I will make myself go and always after I've done a workout, doing what I can, you know, not aggravating things. I always feel good about myself as a result. So the key for me is to tell people, just be consistent. Some days you'll only do that much, but be consistent. People yo-yo with diets, with training, they go flat out and they either get injuries and then they take a few months off or they'll diet like crazy and lose a bit of weight and then they'll get sick of it and take a few months off. I think the key is to just be consistent with your training, your application and I, listen, I do, you know, I work hard at it, Mark. I mean, I really do. I, I will never not do something every day. I do Wim Hof breathing every day. I don't know whether you know the Wim Hof, you know, which is, you know, breath work where you take, you just do 40 sets of 30 inhales and exhales. And then on the 30th one, you, you, they call it a breath retention where you keep the breath out and you try and hold for as long as you can. And I, I do that every day. I take cold showers every day as a result of Wim Hof. My wife and I still do a little meditation out in our front garden sort of to start the day. And we do the 16-8 fasting. So I, I ate, just ate, not all the time, but most of the time over an eight-hour period. So I, I just, without it being ridiculous, I'm trying to do whatever I can to sort of stave off old age. And I think all of that helps, you know? In other words, we're, and Judy's the same, we're doing whatever we can to sort of get into our older years as healthy and as fit and as able as we possibly can. But importantly, it's mindset. You just don't get into the, oh, well, I'm 70 now. I shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be doing that. Who the fuck says you shouldn't, you know? <laughs> you know, it is, you know, the number. And uh, I just, I'm like, no, nah, not going to have that. I'm getting out there. I'm going to mix it. You know, and I'm careful. Look, I don't wrestle with young guys anymore, you know, because I know they want to try and take my head off and, you know, score a bit of Norton scalp as a victory. So rather than get into that and have my ego kick in and end up getting injured as a result, it's better to not even get into that position in the first place. So I, I'm still hopefully a little smarter than I would have been 20 years ago and helping that ability to sort of go into my older age, still being able to be actively involved in my passion, which has always been martial arts. So. Yeah, that, that I gotta say, I'm, I'm impressed, man. And thank you for like, just so people know, this is going on my YouTube channel and my podcast. If you're listening to this on my podcast, 
you got to watch this video. You, you see this gentleman here still practicing martial arts. That is an inspiration of his age. I got to give it to you. And I, yeah, I got to say, well, Professor Norton, I'm going to call you Professor. For those who don't know that, that's a sign of respect that you give to a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. It's been an honor, and I can't say it enough. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> I, I know I got off on a whole lot of tangents, but I, I tend to do that. I'm a good talker. But anyway, I, I really enjoyed the chat. And let's do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future, because I'll, I'll have some more stories for you. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely want you back on the, on the, on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. I'll let, I know it's been a long interview, so I'll let you get back to your day. I don't know if you're doing training or whatever, but it, it was great having you on, on the show. Thank you. Hey guys, just want to let everybody know that if you're looking for a good suspense thriller action novel, check out the book written by me, Mark Bashar, called The Cabal, The Saga Begins. If you go to my website now, www.retortofamilybooks, you can get an autographed signed copy for only $8 plus shipping. Again, go to www.retortofamilybooks.com. Are you a fan of the Mark the Shark MMA show? Are you looking for some swag? Check us out on the web at www.marktheshark.mmashow.com where we sell t-shirts, hoodies, crop tops, hats, beanie hats, anything you want. Check it out. Are you also looking to become a guest on the show and be interviewed by me, Mark the Shark Retorto? Well, go to the website and sign up as a guest. Are you looking to become a sponsor? Go to the website, sign up, take advantage of the wild range growth of the sport of MMA and be have your business and service advertised to millions of listeners that listen to this podcast every week worldwide from everywhere. Check it out. www.markthesharkmmashow.com Hi everyone. This is Mark the Shark with Twitter. Sending a message to all the fans out there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help support it by making a small donation. It could be anywhere from a dollar, four ninety nine, or nine ninety nine. It could even be a monthly donation. Any amount is appreciated. To donate to this money to this podcast, go to www.markthesharkmmashow.com. Again, that's www.markthesharkmmashow.com. Hi, this is Richard Norton, and you're listening to Mark the Shark MMA Show. All right, guys, we're at the end of our show. This is Mark Retorto. I'm signing off. And don't forget to follow us on our Facebook page. It's called the Mark the Shark MMA Show. And it's Mark with a C, not a K. And also, feel free to leave us messages by using the Anchor app. 
And also, don't forget, if you look in a mood for a good action thriller book, to buy my book called The Cabal, The Saga Begins. It's available on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. And if you need a good book for your kid, get the I Am Survivor book or Invisible Girl book written by my daughter, Christina Retorto, also available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show and continue to listen to our shows every week. Thank you.